Previously on Flying the Line, we examined the administrative change from regional to executive vice president and how that changed the political landscape. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including free access to air medical doctors for eligible members. The Aviation Medical Advisory Service can answer your aviation-related medical questions free of charge, helping you stay certified and on the flight deck. Visit alpa.org resources for more information and where to call. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 4, Part 2, Crew Complement, Politics, and the Wien Strike. Article 20 of the ALPA Constitution and Bylaws, as revised through several BOD meetings, was the intractable burr under the saddle of the crew complement issue. The issue, in its first incarnation, dealt with the nature of the third crew member's qualifications and who should do the job, a pilot or a mechanic. This battle roiled ALPA's waters for years, finally culminating in a victory that was almost as bad as defeat. It led to terrible difficulties with the rest of organized labor and exacerbated the pre-existing cancer that would later take the American Airlines Pilot Group out of ALPA in 1963. In the mid-1950s, ALPA came within an eyelash of getting expelled from the American Federation of Labor over the qualifications aspect of the first crew complement dispute. A motion by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters calling for ALPA's expulsion for raiding the jobs of fellow workers reached the floor for action during the 1955 convention. The Teamsters acted on behalf of the professional non-pilot flight engineers represented by the Flight Engineers International Association. The arbitrator, who had formed warm relationships with many pilots dating back to the Banky era, arrived in New York and went to work on ALPA's behalf. He got the Teamsters' expulsion resolution shunted off to a committee where the resolution could be studied to death. Once ALPA had won the war with the Flight Engineers Association over the qualifications of the third crew member, the issue of whether a flight deck should have a third crew member still remained. Article 20 explicitly mandated the three-pilot flight deck for certain categories of large aircraft. This policy dated from the days when the Douglas DC-6 originally emerged from the factory as a two-pilot aircraft. ALPA won the first round of this struggle in the 1950s because it had allies. Lockheed, maker of the famed Constellations, favored the three-crew member configuration. Its aircraft could not be flown without a third crew member. The Connie had an elaborate flight engineer's panel, and the crew member who sat there had real duties. If Douglas was allowed to take advantage of improved technology and build a two-pilot aircraft, such as the DC-6, it would obtain a competitive advantage. Lockheed sided with ALPA for purely economic reasons. The government had mandated a three-pilot crew in overwater operations and when the gross weight of an aircraft exceeded 80,000 pounds. Largely owing to ALPA's political connections and skill at equating the three-pilot crew with safety, the government would continue this policy into the turbojet era. 
the government wound up as an ally of Article 20 policy during the first round. ALPA won jobs for a whole generation of pilots in the 1960s because of it. The three-crew member era lasted until the emergence of the first significant jet airliners designed for two pilots, the B-737 and the DC-9. The first DC-9, the Dash 10 model, was deliberately kept under the 80,000-pound limit, a contemporary Douglas Company newsletter designed to circulate only among employees listed the ramp weight of the aircraft at 78,500 pounds. By the time Delta received its first production model DC-910, however, the ramp weight had soared well over 80,000 pounds. The first DC-9, the Dash 10 series, entered service with Delta in February 1965. The DC-9 was a turbojet, falling under ALPA's three-pilot policy. Its crewing would set the precedent for the next generation of similar aircraft. Braniff had already ordered a comparable aircraft, the BAC-111, and would begin operating it in April 1965, shortly after Delta's DC-910 went on the line. The initial contract to fly the DC-910 was a pivotal event. In 1964, after Delta had already ordered the DC-910, the Delta MEC appointed a special committee to evaluate the aircraft, with a special emphasis on its crewing. This committee enjoyed great respect among the Delta pilots. Whatever they decided on crew complement for the DC-9 would have enormous implications for ALPA's crew complement policy. Should they find in favor of a two-pilot operation, the camel would have its nose under the tent. We must remember that this pivotal event occurred at a time of enormous stress for ALPA. It was barely a year after the American pilot's defection, and while Charlie Ruby, who never wanted the job, was still feeling his way as ALPA's president. One would think that somebody at ALPA National would have lobbied the Delta Evaluation Committee in favor of the three-pilot flight deck, but nobody did. The Delta Pilots Evaluation Committee, which had a heavy background in aviation safety matters, recommended the two-pilot flight deck for the DC-910, and the MEC went along. They signed a basic agreement with the company on April 16, 1964. This was not a side letter, so no one can accuse the Delta pilots of not being upfront on the issue. The language was specific. It is hereby agreed that the pilots of Delta will fly the DC-9 with a two-man crew. Charlie Ruby approved Delta's two-pilot operation without argument. Perhaps he was repaying a political debt to the Delta pilots, whose support had been crucial in getting him elected in 1962. In 1966, Douglas stretched the DC-9 into the Dash 30, which was 15 feet longer than the Dash 10. The FAA approved the Dash 30 as a two-pilot aircraft, under the same type certificate as the Dash 10. Another 9 was already on the drawing boards, the Dash 50, which the FAA had already promised to certificate as a two-pilot aircraft. Because the DC-950 was comparable in every way to the Boeing 737, a crisis was afoot. When the Piedmont Airlines Pilot Group signed a side letter in its 1967 contract to fly the B-737 with a two-pilot crew, the crisis had arrived. Charlie Ruby at first refused to approve the Piedmont contract. United had flown the B-737 as a three-pilot airplane. 
beset with other troubles, Ruby could not buck the powerful United Pilot Group. But how could he force the Piedmont pilots to fly with a third crew member? Alpa's Article 20 policy, now without any external allies and facing internal rejection by several pilot groups, clearly needed rethinking. In addition, while sitting on the jump seat of one of these new aircraft was a job, it was a lousy one. The third crew member had nothing to do. Alpa would find itself waging a long struggle, contractually, to get management to give these pilots meaningful duties. But if Alpa could not tie the third crew member concept to something concrete, then the whole thing would smack of feather bedding. The 1968 BOD attempted a fix. United pilots, under pressure from their management to operate with two pilots to meet the challenge of the airline's competitors, wanted a strong Article 20 that would force all B-737 operators to use three pilots. Instead, Article 20 mandated that all new aircraft be considered for three pilots. The Ruby era ended with gaping holes in ALPA's crew complement policy. Officially, no ALPA pilot group was supposed to be flying with fewer than three pilots on any new aircraft, like the B-737. But what about the new DC-950? Was it new or just stretched? When J.J. O'Donnell became ALPA's fourth president in January 1971, he tried to defuse the issue through diplomacy. He personally went to the Douglas factory and talked to Donald Douglas himself. O'Donnell received what he was sure was a promise that the next generation of DC-9s, the Dash 80, would be a three-pilot jetliner. The United pilots wanted to draw the line at the nose of the DC-950. The Delta pilots insisted on drawing it at the tail. As for the B-737, O'Donnell intended to draw the line at its nose, no matter that the FAA had certified it for two-pilot operations. From the government's viewpoint, the matter of crewing was simply a labor dispute. Two major aircraft corporations were now involved. If ALPA could not force them into crewing two essentially similar aircraft with three pilots, its crew complement policy would clearly damage the commercial prospects of one of them. Having an external enemy like Boeing was bad enough, but now serious internal divisions arose over the policy. With management offering lucrative new contracts to the pilots of several airlines if they would agree to fly the B-737 or the DC-950 with two crew members, something had to give. To appreciate the ramifications of this dispute, we must remember that a pilot already flying the 9 could not tell from the flight deck whether it was a Dash 30 or a Dash 50. The 1974 BOD meeting in Kansas City lasted an interminable 10 days. The closely contested presidential election that O'Donnell won accounted for part of its length, but the bitter internal struggle over crew complement accounted for the rest. For two full days, the delegates fought over it. Finally, they approved what appeared, at first glance, to be a policy set in stone. But was it? The reaffirmed and reworded Article 20 required three crew members for all new turbine-powered or jet aircraft certificated after January 1, 1975, other than short-haul aircraft certificated for commuter and air taxi operations. It then listed the aircraft likely to fit the three crew member category, 
the policy included the B-737, but on the DC-950, the policy waffled. Aware that Delta's pilots were unwaveringly opposed to the third crew member on their DC-950s, the BOD permitted that model to fall under an imprecise definition. Essentially, the language required that O'Donnell fight hard for its inclusion in the same category as all other new aircraft, but, in effect, recognized that he would fail. On all other aircraft, including the B-737, Alpa would nail the flag to the mast and go down with guns firing. Proof of this intention lay in the BOD's approval of drastic measures should any airline try to fly the B-737 as a two-pilot aircraft. Alpa would pay full strike benefits to any pilot group that walked out over crewing the B-737. The association would consider the possibility of a nationwide SOS should any airline force its pilots to fly it with two pilots. And Alpa explicitly threatened to impose a trusteeship on any pilot group that broke the policy, either through a direct contract or a side letter of agreement. As we know, Alpa would eventually lose this war. When Ronald Reagan appointed the Presidential Emergency Fact-Finding Board in 1981, it ruled in favor of two-pilot crews for any aircraft designed that way. But did Alpa have a realistic chance of winning this struggle? And did J.J. O'Donnell do everything he could to salvage the third crew member? It is foolish to think that J.J. O'Donnell didn't give Alpa's crew complement policy his full support and best effort. Had he been president in 1964, at the time the Delta pilots were evaluating the DC-9, he would have insisted on upholding Alpa policy. O'Donnell, as we have seen, was adamant about that. But evidence shows that he did not think the issue was winnable. In fact, O'Donnell remained convinced that the entire crew complement issue was a political ploy from the beginning. In 1974, when the BOD's actions sharpened the dispute and severely limited O'Donnell's flexibility, his arch-rival Bill Arsenault of United orchestrated the dispute. Clearly, Arsenault had to worry about massive furloughs for United if the B-737 reverted to a two-pilot aircraft. O'Donnell thought Arsenault not only had a secret crew complement agenda, but also that he outsmarted himself. In the late 1970s, John Leroy of United chaired a specially appointed National Committee on Crew Complement for O'Donnell. The focus of the committee was safety. By studying the whole range of FAA incident and accident reports, the committee found that the three-crew member flight deck was safer than the two. Which leaves us with the question of O'Donnell's commitment to the third crew member. You can find the answer in the history of the Wien strike, the first practical test of ALPA's post-1974 crew complement policy. The Wien Air Alaska strike of 1977 lasted 22 months. J.J. O'Donnell would fight the good fight over crew complement at Wien, whatever his private doubts. As has so often happened in ALPA's history, developments on small airlines would have large consequences. It happened on little Long and Harmon Airlines in 1934, which Dave Banke used as a test case for enforcing the pilot pay scales and working conditions dictated by the National Labor Board's Decision 83. It would now happen on Wien, 
where a long strike on a small airline with fewer than 200 pilots would be the first step in laying the crew complement issue to rest. It would also provide a powerful example of O'Donnell's ability to handle a political dilemma. The pilots of Wien Air Alaska prided themselves on being the best foul-weather flyers in the world. Many of them had come up as bush pilots under the nearly legendary Noel Wien, the airline's founder. Until Wien lost control of his airline in the 1960s, it was, by all accounts, a good place to work, a real pilot's airline. Alpa made Noel Wien an honorary member in 1974, shortly before his death. Two of his sons and a grandson flew the line for Wien and were Alpa members. They would walk out with their fellow pilots when the strike occurred on May 8, 1977. The strike followed a brief period of ownership by a conglomerate called Household Finance and a leveraged buyout engineered by entrepreneur Jim Flood. Flood then became Wien's CEO and confronted the enormous problem all such financial manipulators must solve, how to pay off the debt incurred by acquiring the company. Flood proceeded to give Alpa its first taste of what deregulation would be like. The Wien strike, which lasted for 653 days before ending on March 1, 1979, was only partially about Alpa's crew complement policy. Certainly, Wien's management wanted to get rid of the third crew member on the B-737. But the device employed to do it was almost more of a problem than the substance of the crew complement issue itself. The aspect of Wien's operation that directly provoked this strike was the so-called higher fire system. A pilot assigned to the second officer position on the B-737s simply could not survive their probationary year. Wien routinely fired and then rehired each pilot on the anniversary of their hiring. Adding to the problem of rotating pilots at the bottom of the seniority list, which meant that only luck got you off the B-737 jump seat, Flood used a technique that would later be identified with corporate raiders like Carl Icahn and Frank Lorenzo. He began selling off assets to service the airline's debt. Confronted with an intractable labor situation and strong fears that management was jeopardizing their jobs by selling off vital infrastructure, the Wien pilots, under the leadership of MEC Chairman Ron Wood, walked out. Flood promptly advertised for permanent replacements. Eventually, he managed a feat familiar to the pilots who lived through the National Airlines strike of 1948. Using a dozen Wien pilots who crossed the picket line and another 69 hired off the street, Flood completely scabbed out the Wien pilots and maintained a reduced schedule. The Wien strikers managed a good strike. Using Alpa's financial support, the 132 strikers maintained picket lines. They traveled to New Zealand and Ireland to shut down training operations by appealing to sympathetic socialist and labor government officials. They won support from organized labor. But as the strike dragged on, and no settlement appeared in sight, the Wien pilots obviously could not win without some form of overt political intervention. The strike benefits were hardly lavish. B-737 second officers, for example, received a flat $1,000 per month, about a third of their pre-strike pay. But they uniformly praised O'Donnell's support, emotional and otherwise, as he made four separate trips to Anchorage. As the strike dragged on, 
The Wien strikers came to know all the highs and lows that only people who have been through such an ordeal can appreciate. The Presidential Emergency Board, selected by Jimmy Carter, would ultimately settle the Wien strike. Democrats in Congress required the board as a condition of their support for the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978. The board ruled against Flood's permanent replacement scabs, assigning them to the bottom of the seniority list, which effectively ended their Wien careers. The board also found that the Wien pilots would fly the B-737 with only two pilots. While specifically disavowing that its finding was in any way a statement on either side of the safety argument, the board nevertheless dealt ALPA's crew complement policy a serious blow. ALPA would remain publicly committed to the third crew member, but the long wean strike eroded support inside ALPA. The Frontier pilots had agreed, before the wean strike, to give up the third crew member on their B-737s. Their open defiance of Article 20 was something O'Donnell could not tolerate. On February 19, 1976, O'Donnell took an unprecedented action. He placed the Frontier MEC in trusteeship. The practical effect on the Frontier pilots was nil. They flew as a two-pilot operation right through the wean strike and went on as if nothing had happened. At the conclusion of the strike, O'Donnell quietly withdrew the trusteeship. He would never move to impose it again on any other pilot group because of an Article 20 violation. With a whole new generation of two-pilot aircraft, such as the Airbus A310 and the Boeing 757-767 arriving on the scene, ALPA was outgunned. By 1980, ALPA's crew complement policy had virtually no support aside from the International Federation of Airline Pilots Associations, which promised to boycott all two-pilot airliners. Nobody took this threat seriously. The safety argument appeared to wane. Even the death of Captain Lloyd Wilcox at the controls of his Braniff B-747, which seemed tailor-made to prove Alpa's point, evoked only yawns. As luck would have it, First Officer Jim Cunningham had previously captained B-727s, and an FAA Czech airman who was fully qualified to fly the B-747 was riding as a passenger. One can only imagine the new life Alpa's safety argument would have acquired had this incident played out like the American Flyers crash. In April 1966, after the captain of a Lockheed Electra died of a heart attack at the controls during a military charter flight, the first officer could not handle the emergency. All 72 people aboard died near Ardmore, Oklahoma. Braniff's Jim Cunningham saved the day in 1979 but his feat of airmanship stirred no widespread demand from the public in favor of the third crew member as a safety factor. J.J. O'Donnell, whose handling of ALPA's politics had reached a plateau in 1978, found himself increasingly on the defensive. His handling of the Wien strike indicated that he was far from finished politically, but he was damaged by it. Perhaps the Braniff pilot's death was an omen. Next time on Flying the Line, Braniff becomes the first major airline casualty of the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 4, Part 2 of Flying the Line 2, 
by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright Alpha 2022, all rights reserved.